Coming up on today's episode of Will's Wide World of Sports, reacting to a big victory for the Heat in Game 2 of the NBA Finals, and then previewing Game 3 that's happening tonight. You know, what the Heat did well, what might continue, and then what the Nuggets, you know, should be looking at going into Game 3. And then I broke down uh, the CBA and some of the new changes, everything to look at uh, with the salary cap and, and all of that moving forward. So a bunch of NBA stuff coming up today uh, right after this. Just got done watching uh, Game 2 of Heat and Nuggets with the Heat pulling out uh, a win in Denver. Not only the first time that Denver's lost at home this playoffs, but the first time that Miami's won in Denver in a while. So lots of credit to Miami. You know, I saw a lot of interesting things during, during Game 2 on both sides, and I just wanted to touch on both, both the Nuggets side, you know, coming off of a loss, and then the Heat side, obviously, coming off of a win. And, and what that means for Game 3, which will be in Miami on Wednesday. First, on the, the Miami side, you know, the, the easy thing to do is say, okay, their, their threes hit in Game 2. They didn't hit in Game 1. That's the difference. And while I don't want to simplify things for them on offense, that is a pretty major part of their offense, is guys like Max Struess, Gabe Vincent, Duncan Robinson, Caleb Martin, hitting not only open shots, but some tough contested threes. And when most of your offense is built around the three-point shot, you know, if they don't fall, Miami's not going to be a great offensive team. And I think we've, we've seen enough evidence in these two games that, you know, even if Denver struggles, they're still a good offensive team. So as much as Miami can rely on their zone, rely on some of their, their athletes and some of their just hard-playing defenders, the series is going to come down to them performing on offense. And so I think, obviously, having guys like Duncan Robinson show up in these next couple games is going to be huge. We haven't seen Caleb Martin play uh, even close to what he was uh, against the Celtics, but that's kind of what Miami is at this point. You know, you know what you're going to get out of Jimmy Butler. And, you know, I'll touch on him in a second. Unfortunately, that's not 100% Jimmy Butler, at least at this point. For the most part, you know what you're going to get out of Bam Adebayo. Although there's definitely been some positive, positive things on offense for him. But after that, Miami just seems to rotate star players almost just like Space Jam style, getting just getting a like times 10 upgrade on all of their on all their attributes. Of course, yeah, we had Caleb Martin against Boston. He uh, has essentially disappeared. He hasn't done much this series. But that's all gone to to Gabe Vincent. Or for a stretch in the fourth quarter, that all went to Duncan Robinson. You know, Max Struess was essentially a negative in game 1. He comes out beginning a game 2 and you know, starts out on fire. So, you know, you could say that you don't trust them. You could call them, you know, all the undrafted players, which we've heard 10,000 times at this point. But what they are is a bunch of really good role players who not only step up, but it's almost a guarantee that one or two role players 
is going to turn into a star player for that game, or at least turn into a really important piece for, for stretches at a time. And I think that's what makes Miami so difficult, is it's not just, okay, you know, Jokic, he's Denver's offense. And if it's not Jokic, it's Murray with some role players, you know, playing off to the side. With Miami, I mean, who knows? You might get a Max Struess half where he hits five threes. You might get a, a five-minute stretch from Duncan Robinson where it looks like he's the best player on the court, or at least most impactful player. You might get a, a whole series from Kayla Martin, as we saw in Boston, or even Kevin Love, who you know, has barely played the last few games, gets the start in game two, and yes, isn't going to be you know, a 20-point-per-game score like he was, but making smart decisions, of course, his, his patented outlet passes. There's just so many ways that Miami can beat you, which is why when they're hitting threes, at least, th- this team's really fun to watch on offense. Because as much as we talk about Denver and their team style of basketball and how Jokic is super unselfish, how they, they move the ball around, that's really this Miami team. Because ever since Jimmy Butler has cooled off, has been hampered by his ankle injury. This team is really, really team-centric. And I think that's making it difficult for Denver's defense. You know, we saw multiple times during the game where because of all this movement, because of all these shooters running around, if Denver's defense isn't locked in every single second of the possession, breakdowns will happen because you're just, you're moving so much, the ball's flowing so much, not getting stuck on anybody's hand. I, I mentioned the, the stretch in the fourth quarter from Duncan Robinson. We all know he's a threat from the three-point arc, but when he's able to draw two defenders from him you know, curling around a screen and get a wide-open three for Gabe Vincent, or when he's able to you know, come around a screen, everyone sees Gabe Vincent now, and he's able to, to attack the rim for an easy layup. If you're not really locked in, on defense, if your five players on the court aren't communicating, aren't one with each other, it makes it difficult. Now, we've seen Denver be able to lock in defensively, and I think that's what makes them at their best. Great offensive team. Jokic uh, is amazing, which we'll touch on. But when they're at their best is when they're getting stops, when Jokic is able to take the ball and his 280-pound self run the fast break, uh, and get some easy buckets that way. That's when Denver is really good. So if Miami is able to consistently play this style of free-flowing offense, make threes, and, and then unleash this version of Bam Adebayo, you know, we might have a series. And I picked, I picked Denver before the series, and I'm sticking with it. I'm not too concerned. Uh, if I'm a Denver fan. But there is that thought of, okay, that we've seen Miami do this now th- three series in a row. We, we can't discount them. We can't say they're not a good team. They are a really good team. And we've seen, we've seen players get hot for stretches. And, you know, it only has to happen four times. So it's, it's happened once. And I think, you know, there's a possibility that it happens three more times. Now, the, the two stars for the Heat, or quote-unquote stars for the Heat, two really different NBA finals so far for them. I touched on Bam Adebayo, and I think with all of these three-point shooters, 
and with all this movement, he's he's played great offensively in playing off of these shooters. Now I've I think we've seen the whole package that Bam has on offense, in that he's a really good passer. You know he'll he'll get overshadowed by Jokic and you know deservedly so, but I think you know there's an argument that he's what the second best or at least top three top five best passing big man in the league right now, and he might not be the biggest, but he has you know a lot more mobility, a lot more body control that you know bigger centers that have to guard Jokic don't necessarily have. So when when guys like Duncan Robinson, Max Struess come flying off of screens, he's getting that chance to be a, a free roller You know when, when Jokic decides to step up on those threes. And when Jokic decides to, to, to drop and, and to play off those shooters coming around Bam's screen, well, then that's where you have guys like Robinson, Struess, Gabe Vincent, even Kyle Lowry to get open shots. So Jokic is going to have to be forced to to step up and respect those shooters and that's where Bam can excel and I think ways that other teams they've played this postseason with them being the, the Nuggets haven't really had I, I think the Lakers to an extent you know especially in game one were able to take advantage you know that was the game that that Anthony Davis had 40 I believe and I think he got it similar ways to Bam. You know, it was a lot of pick and roll, a lot of Jokic coming up to help on, you know, whoever was was coming up. And then just a quick pocket pass. And, you know, that 10 footer that that AD hit in game one. And the that little 10 footer that Bam's just been living in. If he continues to make those shots, and if he continues to catch and be aggressive in some of those matchups, you know, on the pick and roll, that's huge for the Heat. Because I think that takes them from, you know, just a shooting team that that tries to, you know, have their shooters run around to a team that can actually capitalize and actually be multidimensional. Because it it can't just be shooters running around the perimeter. You have to have something off of that. Which is what has made the Warriors so good for so long. Is that yes, they've had Steph and Clay. But if it was just Steph and Clay shooting. You know, it only gets you so far, but then if it's if it's those guys forcing the defense out, and then either themselves being able to attack, or have others like Draymond, Andrew Wiggins come in and attack off of off of those shooters, that's what makes an offense really good. And so we saw that a lot in game two, and honestly, we saw that a lot in game one. Miami was just missing all their three pointers, so I think they've unlocked something offensively against Denver. And then defensively, you know, I think game two is about as well as you can play the Nuggets. I think the Nuggets are, you know, one of the best offensive teams we've seen, not just this year, but I think, you know, the last three, four years. And of course, that all centers around Jokic. But if you can make Jokic a scorer, which I know is simplifying things, especially if you miss the, the post-game press conference from Eric Spolstra, he does not exactly like uh, the idea of, of making Jokic a scorer versus a facilitator, which I understand. It's simplifying it, sure, but I think 
in principle, in a, in a general sense, that's what the Heat were doing. So if you let Jokic score 40, I think that's the best game plan against him. Because, you know, lots have been made after the game that, that Jokic only had four assists. But it's so much harder to defend a team if you have five capable scorers versus if you only have one or, or two if Jamal Murray's playing. You know, as crazy as it sounds, if you're able to limit Michael Porter Jr., KCP, Aaron Gordon, Bruce Brown, if you're, limit, if you're able to limit those guys, then it makes them so much easier to defend. And easier, certainly, in quotes, because Jokic is never going to be easy to defend. But I think that has to be the strategy moving forward. And then they're able to throw you know, the zone as a little wrinkle. And it's worked better than I thought against Denver, mainly because of how Miami plays zone, which I don't want to get into too much detail uh, right now. But one, you can tell they've practiced it way more than I know all 29 other teams do. And they're really in sync with each other when they play the zone. Because it's not, you know, a traditional 2-3 where they're just sitting back in their zones. It's a lot more of a matchup zone. And while I think Jokic, you know, got some things to work in the fourth quarter against the zone, it, it makes it difficult for him. And probably more importantly, it limits any sort of, you know, Murray-Jokic pick and roll. Which, when the Nuggets are struggling, they know they can go to that. But in a zone, you know, there's not going to be many pick and rolls. You know, not going to be many dribble handoffs. So just taking that away from the Nuggets, I think, is big. So, you know, we obviously haven't seen the last of the zone for Miami. And I think that'll be a key, you know, moving forward in the series is if Denver can figure something out against it, besides Jokic just, you know, trying to barrel in and take it himself. If they can find some way to, to move the ball against the zone and to get some open shots for their shooters, I think that will be big, uh, at least on that side of the end. Uh, and then that, that brings me to, to Jimmy Butler, who you know, I mentioned briefly, but you know, I, I can't imagine he's 100%. And the more I watch him, you know, the more I'm questioning, is he even at 80%, 75%? I wouldn't be shocked if we hear after the finals is over that, you know, there was some, you know, really bad ankle injury that he's dealing with because you don't really see him limping in the, in the traditional sense, but, you know, just him running up and down the court, some of the times where you know, he sees a guy with the ball, you know, running a fast break. And he just doesn't seem to have that burst to be able to catch up to them. And as much as Jimmy Butler is, you know, potentially picked apart as a player. And, you know, is he a star? Is he a superstar? You know, is he too inconsistent? I think, you know, the thing you can't disagree on is he's a, you know, A plus competitor. And to not get that out of Jimmy Butler, you know, you have to think that something's wrong physically with him. Because, you know, yes, he's able to, you know, I don't want to say take over, but yes, he can make a couple shots near the end when needed. But I haven't seen any sort of, any sort of burst from him, you know, ever since, you know, the, the beginning of the Celtic series. 
any sort of, again, that, that competitive spirit of, okay, Aaron Gordon's on me. He's, you know, saying how he's been, you know, a great defender, which, you know, I agree he has been. But that word, that's where Jimmy Butler is at his best. When, when Gordon's saying he's a great defender and capable of defending him, Jimmy would just go right up and say, hey, I'm taking on this challenge. I'm getting past you. You know, I don't care who's defending me. But I don't, I don't know if I've seen Jimmy Butler go at Aaron Gordon once. You know, even, even in this fourth quarter, when, you know, he hit a couple shots, was a little bit more aggressive. You know, he'd get the ball against Aaron Gordon and, you know, take a second, take a dribble, kind of see what's up. And then realize, nope, like, like I'm passing to a shooter. So to me, if I was Denver, that's, that's an adjustment I would make. Is, you know, I, I never want to count out Jimmy Butler. And I don't want to say he's not, not worthy of, you know, game planning around. But I think we've seen enough that, you know, if Aaron Gordon's matched up one-on-one, you don't have to help out so much on these shooters. Because at this point, Jimmy Butler's turned into, you know, a really good facilitator. Obviously, still a great leader, but he's looking for Max Struess, for Caleb Martin. He's looking for you know the defenders to, to look his way and then find the shooter. So I think the Nuggets have the advantage if if Gordon's guarding Butler, let him go one on one, and until he shows he's a hundred percent back, I think I think that's the matchup they want. On the the Denver side, really quick. You know, they, they lost at home for the first time this postseason. So it feels important. And it obviously is for, you know, all the reasons I just mentioned for Miami. So I wouldn't take it lightly if I was Denver. And I certainly wouldn't take the heat lightly, which, you know, I wouldn't if I was Denver even going into the series. But as, you know, quote unquote bad as they played offensively, you know, they didn't really get much out of Jamal Murray. Got nothing out of Michael Porter Jr. KCP struggled. I thought he, he showed up with a lot of energy to start the game. Almost a little too much energy. And you know, then led to you know, a couple bad fouls, including the, the one on the three-point shot later in the game. Got nothing out of him. Jokic, again, scored 40. Only four assists. And, I mean, this came down to the last shot. So as much as we say... You know, Miami played great. You know, if Murray hits that shot, goes into overtime, who knows? So I wouldn't overreact too much if I was Denver. But like, like Michael Malone said in his post-game press conference, they're going to have to bring the energy. They're going to have to be locked in, especially defensively, against this Heat offense, which, for all the reasons I mentioned, might not be the most talented might not be the, the hardest to stop, but it definitely takes all five defenders being locked in and really being physical on defense and, and running around with these shooters, playing off of all these, these switches. And we saw that for you know, a good part of the game. Denver, when they're locked in, when they're getting steals, when they're getting stops, that's when it looks like this series is over, that, that Denver is just too much for Miami. Now, I don't want to necessarily say that you know, all Denver needs to do is, you know, lock in defensively and, you know, have a right mindset and they'll win. No, I think that discounts what Miami is doing. But if, 
if you're on Denver's staff right now, that's what you're saying. You're saying we have all the tools we need to beat them. We just need to bring it. And I, I expect them to, to show up, even though game three is in Miami. Miami, just who they are, doesn't really seem like, like a big home court advantage. You know, I think how, how they play kind of shows up wherever. So, you know, I'd expect, obviously, a huge Jokic game. I'd expect a big game from Jamal Murray. You know, we didn't hear much from him, you know, at times throughout the game in game two. So I'd expect, you know, a big showing out of them. But just like any team, you need your role players to step up. You need somebody, whether it's Michael Porter Jr., KCP, Bruce Brown, Christian Brown, who certainly stepped up today. They're going to need more from them because Miami's smart. Spolstra and his staff, you know, do a great job offensively, but then especially defensively scheming around and, and coming up with ways to, to limit Jokic. So they're going to need others. So I, I think it'll be an interesting game three in that respect. I think the, the only other note I want to make uh, about this matchup and specifically about the Heat, you know, people have been saying, you know, oh, they're not, they're not as talented. They, you know, they are lucky to be here. They're getting, you know, great performances out of these guys. All of that. Now, people have pushed back on that. And I mean, I, I think both can be true. I think it's okay to say they're not as talented as Denver because, you know, they weren't as talented as, as Boston, you know, weren't as talented as Milwaukee, assuming Giannis is healthy and playing. But that, that doesn't make a good team. You know, we've seen plenty of examples of teams compile all this talent. It, you know, if it doesn't work together, it, it's just not going to work. And I think Miami is the perfect example of compiling a team that works together. And to me, the most impressive part is just doesn't get rattled. Whether that's on the court, you know, if they're dealing with, you know, fouls that don't go their way, they're dealing with crowd noise, being on the road, not hitting shots. They just have this confidence about them that sure might seem cocky at times, but to me just seems more like poise. And, and that's one of the big reasons why, you know, I've been a big fan of this Heat team throughout this playoff run is that nothing rattles them. They have this poise, this confidence that, you know, okay, this call didn't go their way. You know, we're moving on. This game didn't go our way. We're moving on. I, I don't have any way to officially track this, but I'd have to guess the Heat are one of the least complaining teams in the league. Which, uh, you know, all, all NBA players complain. Every single call that a ref makes, it's wrong, according to the players. So I'm not saying the Heat don't complain. They certainly do. But they don't seem to let it linger. They don't seem to let it affect, you know, the next play or how they play moving forward. If they get a, a string of bad calls in a row, you know, it doesn't seem apparent, I guess I should say, to them. Now, I think Denver might be up there as well in terms of teams that are just consistent, don't let you know, other outside factors impact their play. But I think Miami is certainly number one for me in that regard. And in, in contrast, Boston's probably in 30th in, in last place because they yeah, just seem like if stuff goes wrong, calls don't go their way, they complain, everything falls apart. 
Miami, it, that's not the case. You know, they're, they're able to take, you know, a bad game one, be confident. Again, wh- whether you want to say cocky, whether you want to just say confident. In, in being able to, to show up in game two and, and get a win in Denver, which is tough to do. You know, they're able to not get a couple calls and just continue to play their game. You know, I think we saw even Denver, who, you know, again, I said is probably one of the top teams in the league at, at just being consistent to their game. We saw them, you know, get some calls that, you know, if you want to complain about it, go ahead. You know, I do think there were a couple calls that went against them, but that's going to happen. I don't think you can necessarily complain. And, you know, as a Lakers fan in particular, you know, everybody gets on Lakers fans for, for complaining about the refs. So that's just a part of the game. You know, I, I don't want to spend too much time on it. I think there was a couple times where Denver, you know, kind of lost their poise a little bit. And against this Miami team, you know, that, that can't happen. So I think that's a big reason why Boston lost, is that Miami just consistently shows up, consistently stays on their game. It'll just be interesting to see against a team like Denver, who I think is right up there with them in consistently showing up, getting good shots, blocking out the noise. I think it's a good battle because this isn't, this isn't like Boston against Miami. These are two really good teams, two really good, well-coached teams, and teams that, that play well together. So I think we're in for a good series. I'm still picking Denver overall. But as I said before the series started, I'm done counting out Miami. I wouldn't be shocked at all if they, they took it to Denver. So lots of these questions will be answered. Lots of, lots of interesting storylines to watch in Game 3, which will be on a Wednesday. But until then, uh, you know, I want to take a, a quick break and then go over some, some CBA stuff. You know, the new CBA uh, was agreed upon between the players and the owners in the NBA you know, a couple months ago, but I think people are really starting to look at it when it comes to, you know, the off season and player moving and stuff. So I want to break down some of that stuff, some unintended consequences, some, some team outlooks and what it can mean. So a bunch of CBA and contract stuff uh, right after this break. All right, coming back now, I, I want to spend some time talking about the, the NBA CBA that was passed. Uh, and agreed upon between the players and the owners. It happened during the season, and so you know it got some news. But I think with the with the off season coming up, and with a lot of you know free agency decisions, a lot of potential trades coming out, I think it's really important to to go back and really get into the nitty gritty details of of what was passed, all the positives, all the potential unintended consequences. You know, I, I touched on the CBA. I think a little bit, uh, you know, a month or two ago when it was passed. But I, was, I really want to just focus on the salary cap, the luxury tax, and this new second apron of this luxury tax in particular, which has been getting a lot of news recently. So I want to I summarize all of that, kind of get my thoughts um, out there, uh, you know, based on what this means for the league, what this means for, for specific teams. So this might be a little, you know, numbers heavy, um, a little bit in details, but I'll do my best to try and get it as clear as possible because I think it's going to be really important moving forward for the NBA. 
uh, I'll just start, I guess, with a summary in case you're you're not aware, or even if you are, it's complicated enough. You know, we can. I'll try to summarize it uh, as best I can. The NBA, they they act on a salary cap, but it's not quite like the NFL or some other leagues where it's a hard number that you have to stay under. NBA teams can go over that number, but then they get taxed, which is where, you know, the luxury tax comes in. So for the next season, 2023-2024, the salary cap set at $134 million. And just as an aside, you know, we're going to avoid any, I guess, commentary on how much money these players are making. We're talking, yes, in the millions of dollars for lots of players signing hundreds of millions of dollars of contracts. Whether that's morally right in a society, we're not going to get into it. So we're just taking it for what it is and just focusing on, you know, the NBA in a bubble. So salary cap, $134 million. But again, NBA teams can go over that number. And so that's where the luxury tax comes in. The luxury tax threshold is at $162 million. Basically, if you go over that number, the tax that you have to pay above that amount rises dramatically. You know, you can, you can treat it like, you know, taxes in normal society where, you know, the more you make, the more that money gets taxed when you get up to a higher bracket. It's essentially what it is. So it has always uh, somewhat, I guess, prevented teams from spending too much because even as rich as these owners are, at some point, the return on investment isn't great if you're you know, up over $200 million in salary. Then there's what's called a, a first apron of this tax bracket, which for 2023 is going to be set at $169 million. So it's going to be $7 million over the luxury tax threshold. And again, in the past, before this new CBA, it was just a, essentially an additional, additional bracket where, again, trying to make the tax as progressive as as possible, really trying to limit owners from spending money. So if you went above the first, that first apron, the tax got even greater. So again, no official salary cap, but you know teams would limit based on these numbers. This is where the, the change comes in with the new CBA. There's going to be a second apron in this tax threshold situation. That's going to be set at $179.5 million for 2023. So that's going to be $17.5 million over the luxury tax. And I believe that's going to be set for you know, the future of the CBA, that wherever the luxury tax gets set, the second apron will be you know, $17.5 million over. This is going to be as close as we've gotten to a true hard cap on NBA teams. And there are, or, and have been, and will continue to be, some versions of a hard cap that, that teams face based on you know, choices they make, which we'll get into. But this, this bracket that was introduced, and that's really what I want to talk about today, is essentially really preventing and really trying to prevent teams from passing this number. And again, that number is $179.5 million for this upcoming season. So the, the penalties, they're pretty big if you pass over this number. 
to me, one of the biggest ones is you can't use your mid-level exception or for, for teams in this, this case, it's the, the tax level mid-level exception. To summarize what that is, essentially, if a team is over the salary cap, which again is at, at $134 million, if you're over that cap, you know, in theory, you're like, okay, we're over the cap. We don't have any money. Each year, the team, teams over the cap get this tax level, mid-level exception, which is, I think, typically around $6 million, $7 million that teams can use. And, you know, a lot of contending teams, a lot of teams that were over the cap, this is a big way they build out, you know, their bench, build out some of their role players, because it gives them an opportunity to, you know, in more cases than not, sign like one quality role player, which when they're over the cap, that's the main money they have. Because if you're over the cap, you can't sign players that aren't minimum contracts. So for teams like, you know, the Warriors, the Lakers, the Clippers, teams that are consistently over that salary cap, if they're over, they have this mid-level exception, and then they have just a bunch of minimum contracts they can give out. So we've, we've seen this used, you know, obviously for a while. Some examples this past year, you know, you're not going to get stars, obviously. But teams used it to get some quality role players. You know, the Warriors, they used their mid-level exception to get DiVincenzo, which was, you know, a perfect role player to fit with their, their roster. The Lakers used it on Lonnie Walker, which, you know, started out great. Then I know he fell out of the rotation. And then obviously he had the big game four uh, in the playoffs against the Warriors. The Nuggets used it on Bruce Brown who, again, a perfect role player for what they need. The Heat used it on Caleb Martin, which, you know, we've seen how that's worked out for the Heat. You know, a couple other names that, you know, maybe didn't quite work out, but, you know, were still notable at the time. The Clippers used it on John Wall, and that was back when, you know, last offseason when we thought John Wall was a big signing. But the Clippers, which we'll, we'll get into, they are way over the salary cap. So, you know, they were able to get John Wall through this mid-level exception. One other fun name, you know, the Kings, they weren't over the, the limit. So they didn't have the, the taxpayer mid-level exception. They just had the full, you know, mid-level. They used it on Malik Monk, who obviously was really great and important for them in the playoffs and throughout the regular season. So I, I think that shows that you know, if you're not aware of the, this mid-level exception, that's a big way for teams to get quality role players to fill out their roster. So again, if you're over this second apron tax bracket, cannot use that. So all those players would not have been signed. The next penalty, you can't sign a buyout player, which, again, if you're not familiar with, with buyout and the buyout market in the NBA, Throughout the season, you know, players will get waived, you know, whether it's just they're not performing well, not that good, or in most cases, it's an older player that, you know, maybe has a contract that isn't desirable, that, you know, it doesn't really fit the team they're on. They get waived and then are 
essentially available to sign with with whatever team. There's always a big push for this during the season. You know, this past season we saw Russell Westbrook get waived by the Lakers or technically get waived by the Jazz after the trade. The Cavaliers waived Kevin Love, somewhat surprisingly. Uh, Patrick Beverly also got traded from the Lakers, but then uh, got waived after. When it, when any buyout player comes on the market, when any player gets waived or or bought out in this case, you know teams can essentially sign them for free, right? They're not trading anything. So when somebody like Westbrook, somebody like Kevin Love comes on the market, I think you know fans, media, we all freak out because oh, it's a free player, like. You know, he would look great on, you know, team XYZ when, you know, the reality is there's a reason they were bought out. You know, if they're going to make a big impact, they probably would have been traded or the team would have kept him. So, you know, I think Kevin Love's case, you know, he's been solid for the Heat. That's a good example. Westbrook, you know, was what he is, I guess, with the Clippers. But for the most part, you know, buyouts aren't maybe as impactful as we make them seem. But that's another penalty that if you're over that second apron, cannot sound buyout players throughout the season. And I think that'll be the case for like any players that are waived, I would assume, although that's still unclear. So no mid-level exception, no buyout players. For trades, they're going to limit you on trades if you're over the second apron. You can't trade cash, which, uh, you know, if you didn't know that NBA teams can trade cash. There's obviously limits. It's not like, you know, a team can go to the Warriors and say, hey, we'll trade you $100 million for Curry. It doesn't work like that. There's limits. And when cash is traded, it's usually in small amounts. But, you know, teams can use that for, you know, again, maybe a a nice role player that you can trade back and forth. You can't trade first round picks six years into the future. And that seems like not that big a deal. You're like, oh, that's six years out. For, for teams like the Lakers, for teams like the Suns, who traded for Kevin Durant, that's huge. Because there's already a rule in place that you can't trade first-round picks in back-to-back years. So if you want to trade, let's say, four first-round picks for Kevin Durant, you have to alternate years, even if you had all your first-round picks, which isn't always the case. So then you might trade ones in 2023, 25, 27, 29. And frequently these teams that are over the limit, that are, you know, contending teams, they're wanting to trade, you know, pick six years in the future because to them, you know, it's way far out. You know, get players like Kevin Durant, you know, get players like Anthony Davis, which the Lakers did a few years ago. So that, that's going to be limited. And then you can't take more salary back in a trade. And, you know, this, I don't want to get too in the weeds on this one, but before, like, if you're not over this limit, it's, it's not like you have to have an exact salary match to make a trade happen. You know, there's, there's percentages. You know, it's, I think it's typically been around 125%. You know, you can take back some salary, but there is also obviously limits in that. But if you're over this limit, or over the second apron, you, you can't take more salary back. So it, it's very strict, uh, which, you know, that could be a whole separate topic of 
how trades work and if salary should be a factor and things like that. So that's, that's some of the penalties just straight away. But then there's also, you know, I guess some additional consequences from this, which I think will, will certainly impact decisions in free agency. I mentioned the mid-level exception, which, you know, gets players like DiVincenzo, Lonnie Walker, Bruce Brown. An interesting decision in, you know, this offseason, which will be the first, first year where this happens, is if a team uses their mid-level exception, which, you know, I just mentioned, you can get some solid role players with that money. Once you use that, then that second apron becomes a hard cutoff. Because again, I said, if you're over that second apron, you can't use your mid-level exception. So if you use your mid-level and then, you know, sometime in the season, you want to make a trade, maybe you're taking back a little extra money and you go over that second apron, that's not possible because you use your mid-level. So a good example is Dallas this past year. They used their mid-level on JaVale McGee, who you know, didn't really play much. So, you know, we, that's a separate topic of whether that was worth it for the Mavericks. But they used their mid-level. Then during the season, they traded for Kyrie, which put them over the $179 million, or put them over uh, the would-be second apron, if there was one this year. So that trade wouldn't have happened. So that's an example of, you know, in the season, you know, you can be impacted by decisions you make in the offseason. I think that's the kind of summary of the, the restrictions, kind of where we're at and describing salary cap all the way up through the, the different luxury tax thresholds. There was another change in the CBA that, you know, not necessarily having to do with its salary cap, but is going to impact, you know, what's going to happen. And that's adding a third two-way player for NBA teams. So if you're not familiar with two-way players, the NBA has uh, a developmental league, which was the D League, which is now the G League. And that's essentially for, for younger players, you know, sort of like a minor leagues that, that baseball has. And teams, you know, a few years back or whenever two-way players became a thing, teams were allowed to sign players on these two-way contracts, which essentially put you under contract for the team, but allow you to play for, you know, the quote-unquote major league team, the, the NBA team, along with the team in the G League. And up until now, that's been two players. So you'd have two players on your roster that would spend, you know, a, a decent amount of time in the G League. But, you know, during the season, if injuries happen, if you just need kind of another body, they can spend, I think it's up to 90 days with the, the NBA team. You know, are these the, you know, super quality role players? Not necessarily, or else they, you know, obviously be on NBA contracts. But this is a great opportunity for obviously the players, but then the teams to, you know, take chances on some young players, kind of develop them, but then also have them under contract. So this is how the Lakers got, you know, guys like Alex Caruso, who, you know, started out in the G League. The Lakers are like, okay, hey, let's, let's develop him. Let's sign him to this two-way deal. You know, get some playing time. You know, this is where guys like Mac McClung, who, you know, became famous during the dunk contest this year, 
He's on a two-way contract. You know, if you watch teams like the Warriors, you know, whether it was, you know, Clay, you know, still coming back from injury, missing some time. Obviously, Andrew Wiggins, missing a lot of time. Young role players, you know, not stepping up. Ty Jerome was somebody who, you know, you might not know if you're a big Warriors fan, but he played some important minutes for them, and he was a two-way player. So going from two spots to three spots could impact roster decisions because now you have these three two-way slots that don't count towards your, your full roster that, you know, you can't have for the whole season, but in a pinch, you know, if injuries happen and if you're confident some of them can, can compete in the NBA, you know, we might see more two-way players getting some time during the regular season. And then the last important thing to note uh, before I get into some thoughts. The last time we had a CBA or a big, I guess, contract change between the players uh, and big, big rule changes when it came to salary cap and things like that, that uh, was in 2016. And if you remember 2016, you know, it's been seven years now. That was when there were big TV deals and the salary cap just spiked. Because there was lots of revenue coming in. Salary cap just jumped that year. And, you know, I think at the time, I don't know if they intended for this or if they even knew this was going to come, but a huge unintended consequence came out of that, which resulted in some good, I guess if you want to say good. So that's how Kevin Durant got to the Warriors. And then it resulted in some bad when you had guys like, Lou Aldang, Timofey Mozgov, Evan Turner, all of these, you know, solid players at the time were getting these huge contracts because all of a sudden teams had so much money. But yet 2017 came around, 2018, everybody had used the money in this big salary spike. So all the players coming into free agency for, you know, the couple years after, no teams had money left. So they've put in rules for this. Even if new TV deals come out, even if, you know, league revenue shoots up for, you know, whatever variety of reasons, there's going to be some cap smoothing so that, you know, there's not one big increase in one year because we saw how that worked. That's not good for players. That's not good for for teams even you know if you just get lucky like you know the warriors and kevin durant kevin durant came a free agent right at the perfect time uh, and the warriors capitalized so that's going to be avoided which is is going to be probably the one good thing for players moving forward i think there's there's a couple ways to look at this you know from a, a team building perspective all of these rules in place again, are essentially to really prevent and really dissuade teams from hitting this number. So a a couple teams that uh, are certainly impacted by this, at least in in the short term, the Warriors and the Clippers, at least as of right now, are the only two teams over the the 179.5 limit. And uh, in both cases, they're really not even close. 
So teams are going to have to decide, and the, the Warriors and Clippers in particular, is this tax bracket, is this apron worth you know, getting under? Or do they say, you know, we're too far over, we don't want to just try to cut costs as best as we can. We'll take the hit, you know, for a year or two and see how it impacts. Because yes, I mean, the Warriors, they, can't, they wouldn't be able to sign guys like DiVincenzo. They wouldn't be able to make certain trades, buy out players. But as of right now, they're at essentially $210 million for this upcoming season. So you think, you know, $180 million is what they need to get to or need to get under? No, they're $30 million away. So if you look, you know, at their roster for next season, you know, Steph's making over 50, Clay's over 40, and then you have Poole and Green both at 27. Andrew Wiggins is at 24. And Draymond Green, you know, he has a player option, so his, his contract, at least right now, counts towards the cap. If he declines it and signs elsewhere, obviously that's a big, big step towards getting under the, the apron. But that would essentially just be, you know, taking off Draymond and not getting anything back. So if they, if they do re-sign him, let's say even somewhere around that $27.5 million he's on the books for, unless you're just dumping Jordan Poole, which could be a possibility, unless you're trading Clay, which I can't imagine he, they would at this point, the Warriors might be a team that just says, hey, we'll take the hit. We're going to see how this new tax apron works out. And maybe it doesn't affect them. But if they go that route, then they're really, you know, relying on guys like Gary Payton, who they traded for, guys like Kaminga, Moses Moody, the players that, you know, have lower cap hits to really fill out the rest of their roster because they can't rely on getting somebody like DiVincenzo. The Clippers, they're in a similar situation. They're a little bit under the Warriors. They're at just under 202 right now. That's still over 20 million that they're going to have to kind of get rid of. And, you know, they have ways. And so I could see the Clippers being one team that, that tries to get under. You know, they have obviously Paul George, Kawhi. They're both at 45 for this upcoming year. And then they just have a bunch of uh, role players you know, ranging from like really solid quality, you know, contract role players to eh, not so good contracts. You know, they have guys like Norman Powell. He's at 18 million. He was great for them last year. Nicholas Batum, he's at 11, also a solid player. Zubots at 10 million. Terrence Mann at 10 million. But then they have Marcus Morris at 17, Robert Covington at 11 and a half. You know, I could see either of those players just kind of getting dumped maybe to a team that has the salary cap. Because if you remove those two, then they're under the, the second apron. Now, will the Clippers be competitive next year? That's for another day, I guess. And that obviously depends on their two stars, Paul George and, and Kawhi, actually playing. But can they be competitive? Sure, if, if they're healthy. 
even without, you know, some of their role players that are probably making too much money. They have a competitive roster and they have the ways to get under. It's just, again, uh, a decision they're going to have to make. And it'll be interesting to see if they decide, like, is it worth getting under that, that second apron? A couple other teams that I want to mention just in the short term that this might impact. Uh, the Miami Heat are an interesting team. Obviously, you know, they're still in the finals. We'll see, you know, how that ends up. But moving forward for next year, they have the, the third highest salary cap, at least at the moment, you know, behind the Warriors and Clippers. But the interesting thing about them is a lot of their, like, key players are free agents. So they're not even counting towards this figure. So the Heat right now are at 173 million. And that, again, is only 6 million away from the second apron. And that doesn't include Gabe Vincent, who's a free agent, Max Struess, Kevin Love, and Cody Zeller. Which, you know, Love has been great for them. Cody Zeller gives them uh, some minutes, I guess. I don't know if productive minutes is a good way to put it. But Vincent and Struess, like, they're not just key parts, they're big parts of the Heat this year. So if they want to sign really any, either one of them, that's probably going to put them over the, the apron unless they make other moves. And you might be wondering how they're even that high. Well, that's what happens when you, know, you have contracts for players that you know, might not necessarily deserve it. Although, you know, they've obviously done well and made it to the finals, so maybe they do at this point, especially if they win a championship. But Kyle Lowry, he's almost at $30 million. And, you know, they, they got him for a trade, so they didn't sign him to that contract, but that was part of the reason he was available. They did sign Duncan Robinson to a contract. He's at $18 million for the next year. And, yes, he's come back, but there was points in the season he wasn't even playing. So things like that, I think, are going to be big differences moving forward. In like Duncan Robinson, great player. He had a great run in the bubble. Will he get an $18 million a year contract moving forward? I, you know, that's going to be a big, big change, I think, in the NBA, which you know, I, I want to touch on. But I want to hit uh, a couple more teams in the short term. The Suns are going to be interesting. Because they're an interesting test case of, yes, they have Booker. Yes, they have Durant. Durant's at $46 million for this year. Booker's only at 36 but he's going to be you know, in line for another contract, which will pay him over 50 into $60 million, you know, in, in four or five years. So you're going to have two players at $100 million. Now, two really good players. But then the key is, making smart decisions with the the rest of that, you know, 80 million or so to fill out the rest of your roster. Because right now they have Aiton at 32. They have Chris Paul at not fully guaranteed, but at 30 million. That, that can't happen if you're the Suns moving forward. In this new era of Durant and Booker, the next, you know, players, whether that's Aiton long-term, whether that's you know, moving on from both him and Chris Paul and getting somebody else. Getting a couple other players in that, you know, 10 to 20 range 
that's going to be what makes the difference. And if they can actually compete for a title. Because I think we saw Booker and Durant can be as good as they are. You need depth. And that's going to be, you know, big for them building out their roster. And then, of course, you know, I have to talk quickly about my Lakers. Right now, they're only at $123 million on the books for next year. And, I, you know, I think they're going to be a team that will be fine when it comes to, you know, staying under that second apron at least. Because, you know, it seems like for the last few years, it's essentially just been LeBron and Anthony Davis on the books, you know, with a couple young players. You know, that was Austin Reeves last year. That's, you know, Jared Vanderbilt, Max Christie this year. But that $123 million doesn't count Austin Reeves. That doesn't count Rui Hachimura. Which the Lakers have come out and said, you know, they're going to do whatever they can to, to sign both of them. You know, let's say that's another $40 million for the two of them. Then that puts a lot of pressure on those two guys. Just like I was saying the Suns, how they have to build out their, you know, kind of second-tier players. If, if Reeves and Hachimura are going to play like they can, then that's great, and the Lakers are in a good spot. If they don't, and that contract is sort of an overreaction to how they played, you know, that's where you get in trouble. The, the Lakers have a couple guys on the roster. You know, Malik Beasley, he's not guaranteed any money, but he's at 16.5. Mo Bamba's on there for 10 million. You know, it's guys like that that, you know, are going to, you know, struggle, I guess, in this new, new CBA, in this new structure. Because it's, it's no longer that, you know, you can just say, hey, Malik Beasley, like, okay, you struggled this year. You know, that's fine. He's still a great shooter. The Lakers can't just automatically say, okay, we'll, we'll take the chance on him. He's a good shooter. He'll come back. You know, that 16.5 could go a long way to putting them over the limit and really restricting them. Same with Mo Bamba. You know, he's a you know, really tall center, can shoot some threes. Obviously, he gives you some rim protection. Might be a nice project, but for a team like the Lakers, they can't really afford that $10 million. And I think that's where people are concerned, just as a whole, of, okay, the, the best players, they're still going to get $50, $60 million a year. But then the key is going to be that second-tier players, that middle tier. You know, whether it's, you know, the Lakers and, and Reeves and Hachimura, whether that's the Suns, you know, they currently have Aiton and Chris Paul. Those players can't get $30 million anymore. Or at least on teams that already have $50 million players. Right? Like, for an example, just making up a team. Let's say you have two stars. Two established stars, whether that's, you know, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, LeBron, Anthony Davis. Two stars that have been in the league, can, you know, be eligible for these big contracts. Let's say you have them at $50 million each which is something the Celtics are actually facing in a potential Jalen Brown extension. You know, they could have Tatum and Brown. You know, let's just make it easy and say around $50 million each. So that's $100 million towards two players. But okay, they're your two stars. We'll give them that. Then let's say you spend $20 million on a, you know, quality third option. 
or at least somebody, you know, like a, maybe a Chris Paul was, you know, at least a year or two ago. Maybe that's an Austin Reeves. Then you spend, you know, 10 million on a couple other players, whether that's like a Bruce Brown, you know, gets a nice little, little raise, whether that's guys like, you know, KCP, you know, these really quality role players, you know, they might get like a 10 million a year contract. So there's five players, 100 million going to your stars, another 40 million going to, you know, your, your other starters, your quality role players. That's 140 million just for five players. So then that leaves, let's just say you only have 14 players and save some for your, for your two-way players. That leaves nine spots and only 40 million left to, to stay under the second apron. So then you have, you know, maybe, you know, if you're going to stay under that, maybe it's 6 million to your, your mid-level exception. Maybe you can squeeze in another, you know, $5 million player. But then it's essentially just minimum contracts. So teams are really going to have to, well, one, hit a, a couple minimum contracts if you're building a roster like this. Because yes, you can rely on your five players, but you, you're going to need guys like Gabe Vincent, Duncan Robinson. I know he's on a big contract, but guys like him who might sign for the minimum, right? You need, at least in the playoffs, like seven quality players. And if you're paying all that money to like three of them, you need four players somehow. So that's going to be a big kind of roster construction issue moving forward. And then from the Lee itself, you know, it's going to increase parity because no longer can, you know, a team like the Warriors say, hey, let's get Kevin Durant just because we can. So in that sense, it's good. You know, it's going to leave teams with, you know, just a couple quality players but there's lots of quality players to go around. So it's going to be sort of like this year has been in lots of just solid teams instead of, you know, like the Warriors of, of two or three years ago. The other thing it's going to do, it's going to prevent, or I guess not, maybe not prevent teams, but it's really going to cause teams to think like, okay, we have this player. Maybe he's a young player that they want to sign to an extension, but with all these now new restrictions and I think it's going to be, you know, this extra caution of, of salary cap and where you're at, it's going to kind of cause these teams to think twice before just saying, okay, we're going to throw a, a max contract at this player. We're going to give this player 20 million just because, you know, we want to keep him. I don't think you can do that anymore, especially with how deep the, the league is, with how many solid players there are. It's not going to be smart to just say, hey, Duncan Robinson, you know, you've been great, great shooter. Like we need to keep you. Here's, you know, a $15, $20 million contract. Or the Celtic. You know, Jalen Brown, as, you know, maybe bad as he played, he's still a top 20, top 30 player in the league. I think in the past, yeah, the Celtics just say, hey, here's your max contract. We know Brown, Tatum, best duos in the league. We'll figure it out. You know, now the Celtics have to think like, okay, like, do we want that hundred million on the books for two players? You know, maybe they decide not to. What about young players like, like LaMelo Ball, Cade Cunningham? 
you know, they might not be the best examples, but like Charlotte, they might feel like, like, hey, Lamella Ball, he's our, he's our star. He's obviously going to need a new contract coming up soon. Let's throw him the max and, and call it good. But you can't just throw money around anymore, which I think is a positive thing. You know, it'll cause teams to be smarter, cause teams to really think about roster construction and not just throw stuff together. So from, from an NBA fan's perspective, yes, we might get more parity, but, you know, at the flip side, you know, we also might limit some of these, some of these really good teams staying together. Because you won't have, again, teams like the Warriors, even without Durant. Like the cost of them having Curry, Clay, and Draymond, like that's going to be tough for them to, you know, then sign Jordan Poole, then get Andrew Wiggins. So, you know, to me, that's sort of a negative. So I think there's, there's both sides to it. Obviously, we won't really know the, the ramifications until we get a few years in and see really the unintended consequences. But, you know, in a few years, teams like, like the Magic, teams like the Thunder, that have a bunch of these young, homegrown players, will they be able to stick with it? Will they be able to sign everybody? To me, that's going to be the biggest thing for the league. Because I think the league should, should want and they should reward teams that don't just go sign players, don't just you know, trade everything, get stars, uh, like the Lakers, you know, even if I'm a fan, you know, their, their philosophy has been, hey, let's get LeBron. Let's trade everything for Anthony Davis. We'll fill out the rest of the roster. I think the team should reward the magic for, you know, potentially building around Paolo, Franz Wagner. They should reward the, the Thunder with, you know, all their young talent, whether it's SGA, Josh Giddy, Jalen Williams, Chet, who we haven't even seen yet. If those four players are good, they should be able to keep them. Or should be rewarded in some way. Or like the Spurs. You know, the NBA should be doing everything they can to make sure that Wimbanyama, you know, assuming he's as good as people say he's going to be, he should stay a Spur. You know, as much as 29 other teams are going to want to sign him, NBA should be promoting players sticking in cities because I think that's when you get not just NBA fans in general, but if you're living in a city, then you really feel connected to these star players. Like John Morant before all of his stuff, which we won't get into. He was one of the best young players. And for a smaller city like Memphis, you know, he was their guy. So as much player movement as we've had, you know, I don't want to see you know, in two years, LaMelo going to the Lakers or John Morant moving or even Zion, if he comes back healthy, him going to a bigger market. We should be promoting teams to build from within. So that's my, you know, big concern with this new CBA is how that gets impacted. And then how, you know, the, the trade-offs with parity, with preventing teams spending that much. That'll, again, it'll be a really good case study in these next couple of years to see how teams respond and to see how the league responds and how, how fans respond to what the, the, the choices the teams are making.
So uh, that was a lot. Uh, hopefully it was easy, at least easy-ish to follow uh, with all the, the contract stuff. But I think you know we'll get more into this when the offseason actually starts, once we start teams, once we start seeing exactly what teams are happening. Mainly the Warriors, mainly the Clippers, teams like that that really need to make decisions. Once we see how that goes, then we'll we'll be able to see what what's happening moving forward. So, plenty of coverage on that coming up in the next next month or two as we get in the NBA offseason. But I just wanted to spend at least some time getting getting ready for it uh, and getting everybody up to speed. That will do it for the episode today. Uh, we will be back this weekend after game four of the NBA Finals. So we'll react to the, the last two games uh, of the NBA Finals and preview uh, a game five because we know for sure there's going to be a game five. Uh, so make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you this weekend.